This fall, we're beginning a new series. Uh, we're in the second week of it called Elect Exiles, looking at the letter of 1 Peter. This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. It's a dense passage which brings together a number of the great fundamental Christian ideas. Listen for these various themes as we read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Last week we looked at the first two verses of 1 Peter, where Peter addresses his letter not to the churches, but to the elect exiles in dispersion. And I argued last week that this is actually Peter's basic picture of what the Christian life looks like. We are called to live according to God's plan. We are chosen and scattered about to live as exiles. Peter didn't say uh, you're going to live as exiles while this emperor is in power, but another emperor will come and to power and he'll be better and you'll fit in and you won't be exiles anymore. He doesn't say Christians will be in exile until the edict of Sertica, which ended the legal prosecution or persecution rather of Christians or Constantine's edict of Milan in 313 that made Christianity a legal religion. He doesn't say Christians will live in exile until the Protestant Reformation or until religious freedom is invented and then no longer will you be exiles and you'll fit in. No, Peter says the Christian's permanent status in the world as it is, in this world, regardless of the degree of toleration granted by our society or our state, is to live as exiles. Now, Peter recognizes right away this is not an easy way to live. Like an unstable element, our tendency is to leave our status as exiles and turn to fighting or conforming or running away. What we need to live as elect exiles in the world where we've been scattered is hope. Hope. A hopeless exile is intolerable. It leads to despair. Imagine with me that you're in a desert. It can be flat or sand dunes, it's up to you, you're the one imagining it. But what it cannot have is any trees, dry creek bread, or anything on the horizon. Every direction you look, it's the same. You can figure out basic directions from the sun, but how would you know whether you should head north, south, east, or west? Everything looks the same in every direction. It's a hopeless situation. How could you not despair? And yet, um, even if you have sufficient food, water, and shade, you would fall into despair. There's no way to know where to go. 
But if you imagine the same desert scene and just add something on the horizon, a forest, mountains, anything, a city, suddenly now you have hope, even if it's day's journey away. You have somewhere to go. You have something to fix your hope on. Likewise, Christians can only live as elect exiles in dispersion with hope. And so immediately Peter turns from saying that we are elect exiles to saying we have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. This morning I want you to see three aspects, three dimensions of this Christian hope. First, our hope is founded on Christ. Second, our hope looks forward. And third, our hope shapes our trials. First, our hope is founded on Christ. Our hope is founded on Christ. After this initial greeting, Peter begins his letter not simply with a series of indicative statements, but he begins with praise and worship. See how he begins? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, anytime we are talking about God, his character and his work, praise is the proper mode of doing so. Praise be to God. But which God does Peter bless? Notice what he says. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we see the first reason why, right away that our hope is founded on Christ. The object of our hope is God himself, his character and his actions, that God will indeed save us. And Peter says right here at the beginning that God has definitively revealed himself in Jesus Christ. That is to say, God chooses to be known as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So which God do we hope in? We hope in the God whom Jesus addressed as Father. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to hope in him, look at Jesus. In fact, Jesus said the same thing. He told his disciples, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Commenting on this first verse, John Calvin states that God wills to be known only in Christ. Hence, those who conceive of God apart from Christ have an idol instead of the true God. What Calvin's saying is that if our conception of God, our image or our picture of God is based on our own speculations or philosophical assumptions or that God must be like this or that or it's based on our own experiences and preferences. My father was like this and so God the Father must be like this. Whatever that is, or maybe you say my father was like this and so God the Father must be the opposite of that. Whatever you're basing that on, if it's not basing it on Jesus Christ and God as he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, it is an idol. The only way to know God is as he has shown himself to us, as he reveals himself to us. And how has he definitively revealed himself to us? In Christ Jesus. And so God's character and his action definitively re revealed in Jesus Christ are the object of the Christian hope. So our hope is founded in Christ Jesus who shows us God. But second, our hope is founded on Christ because he is the means of our new birth. Do you see how verse 3 continues? Why do we praise or bless God? 
because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, I know since Jimmy Carter, the phrase born again Christian has been popularized. But in the New Testament, this metaphor is actually only used in two places. Here in 1 Peter and in John chapter 3, where you may recall, Jesus has a covert discussion at night with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And, Jesus, and they're almost out of the blue. He's having this conversation with Nicodemus, and he says, Nicodemus, here's the bottom line. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is saying, what in the world does that mean, to be born again, a new birth? What could that mean? Well, Peter picks up this same metaphor used by Jesus. And what does it mean? It means that new life, new birth, like our first birth, is something that happens to us, not something that we do. One thing we all have in common is that none of us here voted on being born, right? None of us had any hand to play in our birth. Or, uh, anyways. Uh, <laughs> it's something that happens to us. New birth is God acting in us according to his great mercy and steadfast love. But not only is it something that God does in his steadfast love, this metaphor of new birth is also full of new potential. It's, it's, it's full of hope. It's a fresh start. I, I love this line from a U2 song. They say, freedom has a scent like the top of a newborn baby's head. Peter's getting at that a bit. What can you imagine that's more hopeful than a newborn, full of its whole life ahead of it? This new birth, full of potential, is to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we're born again somehow through Jesus' own resurrection. Here we can hear echoes of Peter's own story in this verse. Peter spent years traveling around with Jesus. He knew Jesus as his friend. He spent time with him, but he also confessed, you're my Messiah. All my hopes for myself and for my country are placed on you. He said, you are the hope of Israel. But when Jesus was arrested, condemned, crucified, died, and buried, Peter knew despair. This is my Messiah. This is my hope. And now he is dead and buried. My hope is gone. All his hopes and expectations had collapsed. And yet, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it's like a new birth to a living hope. Peter knew that himself. To all of a sudden say, to go from the despair of saying, my Messiah is dead and buried, to saying the, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive again. In the Tolkien's Return of the King, Sam Gamgee meets his friend Gandalf, whom he had seen die in the mines of Moria. And you remember the line that Sam says to him. It's a great line. Hopefully you do remember it. Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And that could be Peter's own words after he sees Jesus resurrected. I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Peter comes to this living hope through Jesus' resurrection, a hope that even death cannot thwart God's plan. And so Peter brings together these images, a new birth and a living hope, and they both come through Jesus' resurrection. And so here's the basic orientation of the Christian life. It's hope, 
The Christian life is lived between Christ's two comings. His first coming as a baby in the manger, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So we look backwards to that. And yet at the same time, we look forward in hope when Christ, uh, to the return of the King, when Christ will come again to make everything sad come untrue. And only then will our exile come to an end as the world is put right and we feel ourselves to be at home again. And we have a sure foundation to look forward to this hope because we can look back at Christ's resurrection. And so his resurrection is the foundation for our living hope. But Peter is actually saying even more than that. Like the twist in Tenet or whatever your favorite time travel film is. Peter is saying the effects of the everything sad coming untrue that comes at the last day is actually filtering backwards in time to you now. That you have new birth now, here. Yes, one day you will live in the new heavens and the new earth, but you, if you have faith in Christ, are new here and now. It's, we can't quite get our heads around it. It's like a twist in a time travel movie. But we have the effects of the new birth now as God works through us. Before we move to the next point, look down briefly at verse 8. We're going to come back to verse 8 uh, next week because uh, it ties into the next section here. Um, but I want you to see two basic features of our relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the foundation of our hope, here in verse 8. First, and here's really the main thing, if you don't hear anything else this morning, here's what you need to hear. Christians love Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. Though you have not seen him, you love him. If you've been with us in the evening series looking at Deuteronomy, maybe you hear faint echoes here of that key verse from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Well, now Peter is saying that the God of Israel who has revealed himself, has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and so we should love Jesus Christ with all our hearts, souls, and might. But again, we hear echoes of Peter's own story. Do you remember at the end of John, John 21, after Jesus has, or Peter has abandoned Jesus, Jesus is arrested, died, buried, raises again. And then in John 21, at this intimate scene, Jesus and Peter are sitting by a campfire on the shores of the lake. And Jesus doesn't ask Peter, are you really sorry for everything you did? He doesn't say, you know, when you denied me, that was actually really a terrible thing to do and it hurt my feelings. He doesn't say anything like that. What does Jesus say to Peter three times? He says, do you love me? Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Do you love Jesus? Second there in verse 8, Peter continues. He says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Hey, the Christian believes in Jesus. They're convinced that in Jesus, God has revealed himself, that in the crucified Messiah, everything sad is coming untrue, and that in the resurrected Messiah, we have new life. Our hope is founded on Christ Jesus, whom we love. The second aspect of our Christian hope that we need to see in this passage is this. Our hope looks forward. Our hope looks forward. That's kind of entailed in the idea of hope, isn't it? That we're looking to something in the future. And certainly that is true of the Christian hope. In verse 4, Peter says that to experience new birth into a living hope is to be born into an inheritance which is un imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept 
in heaven for you. When our family briefly lived in the Chicago area, the campus we lived on and the church we attended were in the middle of some really wealthy neighborhoods with all sorts of mansions around. And I asked someone, uh, you know, w there wasn't a lot of offices or businesses in these neighborhoods, and so I asked someone, what do these people do for work? Do they all commute downtown? Do they telecommute? Like, how does, this, how does everybody make all this money that they live in these mansions? And the answer I got was, well, some people do commute downtown, but mostly it's old money. People were born into an inheritance. They had money and never needed to worry about it. Well, Peter says the Christian in their new birth is also born into an inheritance. It's not an inheritance that we receive now, but that we look forward to. Peter says this inheritance has four characteristics. First, it's an inheritance that will never perish. It's indestructible. Mansions can burn down, businesses can be ruined through poor management, stock portfolios can collapse. But the Christian's inheritance is imperishable. Second, it's an inheritance that will never spoil or be defiled. That is to say, it's an inheritance that can't become impure. That might sound like a strange idea to you, an impure inheritance. What does that look like? Well, imagine you get contacted by a lawyer who says you've inherited a vast fortune from a distant relative that you only vaguely were aware of. And you say, well, that's great. Where did all this money come from? And they answer, well, your distant relative sold conflict diamonds or they ran sweatshops in LA, or it's all from a slave plantation years ago that's been invested since then. All of a sudden, your joy at inheriting money would kind of sour, wouldn't it? This seems like tainted money. Maybe I don't actually want this inheritance. But Peter says the Christian's inheritance is undefiled. It cannot be made impure. Third, it's an inheritance that will never fade. I remember if you read it in high school, maybe Miss Havisham in Great Expectations. Remember, her mansion is dilapidated. She still wears her wedding dress that's discolored. And remember, the wedding cake is sitting on the table, and it's molding and covered in bugs. And she's living in this fading glory of the past. That's a fading inheritance. But Peter says the Christian's inheritance will never fade. Fourth, and finally, Peter says... You know, we might wonder, how can our inheritance remain imperishable, undefiled, unfading? He says it's because it's kept in heaven for us. It's, I think probably we should connect here then Peter with Revelation. That Peter's not saying we're going to go to heaven and get this inheritance someday, but rather as John sees in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. Ultimately, the Christian hope looks forward to an inheritance that is God himself come to fulfill all of our desires, come to meet all of our needs, to comfort all of our sorrows. But our hope doesn't just look forward to this inheritance as some far-off thing with no way to get there. Calvin asks, uh, commenting on this passage, what good is salvation 
in a safe, protected harbor if we are out at sea being tossed to and fro by a storm? Peter seems to recognize this problem. What hope is, is simply having a good goal if it's unreachable? And so in verse 5, Peter continues, Just as our inheritance is kept for us, so we too are kept for our inheritance. It is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In hope, then, we look forward knowing ourselves to be guarded by God's power. Peter says that we are guarded by God through faith. Faith is, as it were, our anchor that keeps us rooted in God. It's how we stay anchored in God's power. But faith is not our achievement. Faith, you know, means believing or trusting, as we reflected this morning in, in catechism, uh, which adults, if you have not been in the catechism time, it's a great time, 9.30. You're welcome to come to that. Everybody is. Uh, but as we reflected this morning, faith is trusting or believing in Jesus. But faith is not, you know, this, this trust, this belief in Jesus, it's not like solving some great math problem or physics problem. You've worked out the whole equation and you come to the conclusion, okay, I do believe in Jesus. It's not like that at all. It's more like flying on a jet. I don't really understand aerodynamics. I certainly don't understand jet engines. But I have faith that it works and that it's safe to fly. It does raise a question, though, if, if we're born into this living hope and yet we're preserved by our faith, what is the relationship between faith and hope? Bible scholar Catherine Hockey suggests that hope sets the destination, but faith provides the map and the means. In this passage, hope tells the audience what goal to have and who is significant for the attainment of that goal. Faith, as belief in the gospel about Christ, provides the worldview in which this contextualization of hope makes sense. Faithfulness, the action of fidelity to God in Christ, provides the means to attain the goal hoped for. In terms of what it looks like in real life, active hope is essentially the same as active faith. Both have to be enduring to reach the desired eternal outcome. That is to say, hope looks at the goal Faith is how we walk the steps to get there. And yet, in practice, faith and hope are intertwined. They're not easy to separate. We've been looking at how our hope looks forward. We've seen that Christ raised from the dead is the foundation for our hope that we look back to. We look forward to eternal life, to these promises. But Peter shows a third aspect of our hope. It's not only founded on Christ, it looks forward, but it also has effects here in the present. And so here's the third aspect of hope we need to see, that our hope shapes our trials. Our hope shapes our trials. Look at verse 6. In this, that is, in the salvation that will be revealed in the last time, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Here is a central paradox of the Christian life. We experience real joy in the midst of real grief. Peter doesn't deny that our joy is real. It's not pretending. It's not uh, putting on pretenses, putting up a good show. But he also doesn't deny that our grief is real. Both are real, and we hold them together in the Christian life. 
Let's look at what Peter says about trials shaped by hope. You might be noticing I really enjoy subpoints. There's five things he says here, but I'll go through them quickly. Don't worry. First, he says these trials are temporary. See what he says? He says, now for a little while. Now for a little while you face these trials. In the midst of a trial, in the midst of suffering, it starts to encompass your whole uh, view, right? Your whole, it's all you see is the trial in front of you. But Peter's saying, in hope, look at it in perspective, in the perspective of eternity. In light of our eternal hope, a trial here and now is only for a little while. Second, Peter says these trials are necessary. He says in verse 6 that they're for a little while, if necessary. Living life as an exile, both because of the fallenness of our world and because if you've chosen to follow Christ, you feel a disconnect from society. Uh, we talked about both those last week. Life as exiles necessarily involves trials. Peter's word here, trials, is the same word which is translated in the Lord's Prayer as temptations. Remember, we've prayed already this morning, lead us not into temptation. We need to hold these two together. Trials are necessary. Christians will face trials or temptations. And yet, at the same time, we shouldn't go looking for them. We should, in fact, pray, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into trials. But they are necessary. Third, Peter says they are various. You're grieved by various trials. And we face all kinds of trials. The trial you face may not look like the trial or temptation the person sitting next to you faces. In this letter, here's a quick list of, of the various kinds of trials that Peter says we should expect. He says, some people will speak against you as evildoers. People will accuse you of being a bigot or narrow-minded or being unloving or causing trouble. Peter says, ignorant, foolish people will talk about you. People will claim that you believe all sorts of things as a Christian that you don't actually believe. Uh, in the early church, Romans accused Christians of eating infants. Somehow they really misunderstood the whole communion thing. Uh, so made ignorant, foolish people saying all sorts of false things. Peter says some of us will have to work for unjust masters, and in that context, we will suffer unjustly. You're going to have bosses who take advantage of you, who make your life harder. Peter says some Christians will find themselves married to non-Christians who will misunderstand their faith. And that brings all sorts of trials with it. Christians will be reviled. They'll suffer for righteousness' sake. They'll be slandered. He says in chapter 4 that Christians will be maligned for not joining in sensuality, drunkenness, drinking parties, and debauchery. He's saying you're going to be teased, high school students, and marginalized in the locker room when everyone else is joking about their sexual exploits and drunken parties. And it's obvious that you're not living in the same way. In fact, the trials that Christians face are so varied uh, that you really can't make an exhaustive list. Fourth, he says these trials are grievous. They bring real sorrow and pain. Peter doesn't downplay that pain and sorrow. He says this is uncomfortable. It is distressing to face a trial. It doesn't mean you're weak in your faith if you feel upset about the trial you're facing or if you're distressed or grieved. But Peter does set this beside real joy, inexpressible joy filled with glory as we face these trials. 
Fifth, these trials have a purpose. Peter says in verse 7 that our, our hope shapes our trials so we see them, uh, or, or, or so that the tested genuineness of our faith can be found out. And here he makes a double comparison with gold. Gold is tested by fire. It's melted down. The impurities rise to the surface as dross, and then they're skimmed off. And likewise, Peter is saying your trials are like that. They're fiery trials which help to purify your faith, to remove its impurities. But he also says there in verse 7 that tested genuine faith is more precious, more valuable even than the most pure gold. Even gold might perish, but faith stands firm. Well, I said there was only five subpoints, but I actually had two fifth subpoints. So sixth. <laughs> These trials have a result. They ultimately result, Peter says, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's language here is ambiguous. It's not clear if it's the Christian who is praiseworthy, glorious, and honorable in their behavior, or if the Christian's faith in trials brings praise, glory, and honor to God. But probably those two senses are not very far apart since Peter has already said it's God's power that guards the Christian. It's God's power that's at work in you in the face of trials. And so when you face a trial with hope and with faith, you walk through it faithfully, it brings praise and honor and glory to God through your praiseworthy and honorable actions. So Peter says, hope shapes our trials so we can face them with joy, looking ahead to the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our very souls. So I ask you, friends, as we conclude, where are you at today? Do you have hope founded on Christ? Or are you hopeless? The new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is open to anyone to all who have faith in him. You're simply called to love him and believe in him. Or perhaps you have faith in Christ, but you've been too focused on this world, this life, and you've lost sight of your future hope. I call you again to remember our hope looks forward. We look beyond the confines of this life to the life to come when everything sad is made untrue. Or perhaps you are in the midst of a trial even now. Friends, I call you, face this trial with hope and faith. Face it even with joy, knowing that you are guarded by God's own power. Let us pray.